The next case was presented by Dr. Jeff Vasarka to Drs. Graylow and Bud. This was an 80-year-old female who I saw with a past medical history of diabetes, hypertension, and congestive heart failure who was found to have locally advanced breast cancer. She had underwent mastectomy with axillary node dissection. After sentinel node, at time of surgery, was found to be positive. Review of her pathology showed she had lobular carcinoma, poorly differentiated with signet ring features. The disease was also found to be multifocal in etiology with three different lesions, measuring 4 centimeters, 2.8 centimeters, and 2.5 centimeters. Her axillary lymph node dissection had 13 of 14 lymph nodes involved. She was ERPR positive and her to new overexpressing. Can you talk kind of more, she's 80 years old, about her sort of general condition and lifestyle? She was actually in excellent health. She performed all her activities of daily living. At the time, she was living with her daughter. She was a widow. She had two grown children, really no other issues with her. She had very good social support. And every time she came to see me in the office, she was usually accompanied by at least one of her daughters, one of her grandchildren, her son-in-law. She was never by herself. And who, if any, in that whole group were sort of the information gatherers? Was the patient the one? Were there people going out on the Internet and her family? Or were they just sort of saying, okay, what do you think? They didn't come in prepared with a lot of information, but the daughter certainly was somewhat savvy in terms of questions, and she was the one who took in everything and would come back to me with questions, even if the mother wasn't around. And you mentioned that she had diabetes, hypertension, and heart failure. What was the status there? Yeah. You know, her heart failure was this kind of question that hung in the air that she had not had myocardial infarction that I could find when I did a pre-therapy MUGA test on her, she had a normal ejection fraction at about 62%. When I initially saw her, wasn't on heart failure medicine, and I couldn't tease out from her current physician, you know, where she got this diagnosis from. So, Julie, I wanted to bring this case up because it's a common situation. We have a lot of patients in their 80s and the whole adjuvant issue, and particularly our sensitivity from using the adjuvant online model to the competing causes of mortality. So here you've got an 80-year-old lady with a bunch of comorbidities, but who has a pretty nasty breast cancer that's ER positive and HER2 positive. What would you be thinking? Well, I'd want to make sure I did more good than harm is, of course, what I'm thinking here. As you point out, I'm not quite sure where, because she sounds better than her comorbidities would make you think in terms of where would I put her in in the adjuvant online profile in terms of her comorbidities. She's got some that worry me a lot, but it sounds like she's quite functional. But her chance of dying of other causes in 10 years is really quite high. Although with 13 positive nodes, her chance of an ugly recurrence in a very short period of time is also quite high. So, you know, this is a complicated situation and I would really want to make sure that we did more good than harm and we have real potential for doing harm in this case, I think, in terms of being too aggressive. So what would the options be that you would consider? And specifically, would you consider giving her trastuzumab? I'm sure you're going to give her hormone therapy. We'll talk about that without chemo? It's certainly something that I would love to feel comfortable doing, giving her, you know, an anti-estrogen therapy along with trastuzumab and omitting the chemo. But I have to say, I really believe in the synergy between trastuzumab and chemotherapy and think that probably both together is 
better than the trastuzumab alone. If I really felt that I couldn't get chemotherapy in, I will tell you with no study to back me, I would do that. I would give endocrine therapy and trastuzumab. But I really think that if she could get a taxane in, that would be my preference. And a lot of that has to do with what she looks like in front of you. And also, sometimes in patients like this, I'll say, let's try it and see how it goes. And if we have to stop the chemo after a cycle or two, then we've tried it and we've said we can't get it in. Ataxane, which one? Yeah. Well, I think the regimen that has the most data to back it would be the docetaxel carbotrastuzumab. I'm really not sure the carbo adds anything in this setting, and I do think there's really good data. If I'm doing something off-study and I'm altering tested regimens anyway, really good data of synergy between paclitaxel and trastuzumab. So she would not qualify for this, but we are about to open a phase two trial of paclitaxel weekly with trastuzumab. It's for a lower risk group. It it wouldn't be for somebody with 13 positive nodes, but I think weekly paclitaxel is much more tolerable, especially in an elderly population than the classic TCH regimen. So here I'm going totally off what the studies have shown, looking for a regimen I think she can get in that makes sense. And, you know, I might you know, lean toward that weekly paclitaxel with trastuzumab regimen. Any situations, you mentioned she's a diabetic, is she on insulin? No, she's just on a real cheap dose of glyburide, about five milligrams a day. Does she have any neuropathy? No. Like I said, she is in excellent health. Julie, any situations, brittle diabetic, where you consider NAB in the adjuvant setting? Absolutely. If I was worried about the steroids and her blood sugars, I think that would be ideal because there's a regimen I don't need to give the steroids. And little concern about, you know, neuropathy here where probably docetaxel would have less impact, but this patient doesn't have any pre-existing neuropathy. Tom, how would you be thinking it through? And is there an age limit? I mean, 85, 90, where you just don't use adjuvant chemo? In the late 80s, I have to be pushed pretty hard, I think, to use chemotherapy just because the competing mortality is so high. You know, I actually did this just a uh, day before yesterday, I think, with a patient, kind of worked it out, and really there was a minuscule benefit in her case. This patient also had significant comorbidities. How old was in your this, patient? She was 85, and the benefit of chemotherapy was less than a percent. Was this HER2 but, positive or HER2 no, negative? No, no, this was HER2 negative. In this case... I think no matter what I would do, it would probably not follow one of the standard regimens, kind of as Julie just said. So that said, the question is what? So certainly hormonal therapy. And I guess I would be inclined, if she had no neuropathy, to try weekly paclitaxel with trastuzumab just because I think there's clear synergy. I would worry about the neuropathy, though. And in failing that, this might be one of those cases where I would give hormonal therapy and trastuzumab. I've never, actually, I don't think I've ever done it, but I'm certain I can concoct a situation where I would, and this may be one of them. And of course, she'll get radiation. She had a mastectomy, I guess, and she'll have post-mastectomy radiation. I probably would not use an anthracycline. So can you follow up with what happened with the patient? Well, unfortunately, you know, not having really good data in terms mm-hmm. of the weekly taxol yeah. herceptin, I didn't feel comfortable, though I liked yeah. the idea. I talked to her and her family. You know, initially, I didn't even have the HER2 new staining. So when I talked to her initially, it was about CMF. But when the HER2 new staining came back positive, I actually gave her TCH. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. did wonderfully. Okay. She tolerated six cycles, no dose reductions, really no issues with it whatsoever. Did you give it with growth factor? Or? Oh, I did. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. And how does she do? She's out about 
six months completing the one year of her septin and she's been fine she's on aromatase inhibitor now her bone mineral density was normal so what about the other issue here which is the choice of endocrine therapy where do you two stand right now in initial hormonal therapy in a postmenopausal patient julie for the majority of patients i'm using an aromatase inhibitor I do think tamoxifen is a good drug still that has its niche. And actually, I don't know if you got to the CYP2D6 story, but feel that that might be able to pick out a group who actually might even do better with tamoxifen. That being said, if you look at data of the toxicities of tamoxifen by decade of age, and Mitch Gale has done a really nice look at this in the prevention trials of tamoxifen placebo, By the time you get up to the 70s and 80s, your risk of the stroke and the DVT and the blood clot and endometrial cancer goes up with increasing age. I really shy away from tamoxifen in the oldest patients because I think those life-threatening toxicities, their baseline risk of those issues is so high to start with, and then it just augments it. So in older populations, I'm much more inclined to use an aromatase inhibitor. The bone loss, the lipid stuff, we can evaluate and follow and manage and treat. And I'm not so worried about that. So tamoxifen is my preference in younger groups when I think that those life-threatening toxicities are much less. And that's kind of spelled out in a very nice JNCI article by Mitch Gale in 1999. Tom, same question. How are you approaching adjuvant endocrine therapy? I usually, in a postmenopausal woman, I will usually start with an aromatase inhibitor as opposed to a switching strategy. I think that there are early recurrences that we can inhibit. You know, there's this survival advantage with some of the switching trials, but I really think that most of the analyses are confounded by the fact that for all but one of the trials, you're randomizing patients after they've had two years of tamoxifen. So you're looking at a group of patients who are enriched for hormone-sensitive patients. So I think, you know, that may account for the difference. There was an interesting, at San Antonio, Mitch Dowsett, showed you know, the combination arm where they got anastrozole and tamoxifen, and then what happened to those patients after they were just switched to anastrozole. So it's sort of, a, if you consider the combination as equivalent to tamoxifen, it is sort of a switching trial, and it was still better to get the anastrozole up front. So you know, I think it's a question we need the answer to from BIG-198, but I'll usually start with an aromatase inhibitor. The majority of my patients are premenopausal, and I'm now just ordering the CYP2D6. And could you give me some your feedback about that? Because when they're abnormal, they don't come back just saying black or white. You're getting all these different results back. Right. So I will tell you that I have yet to order a CYP2D6 test because I'm struggling with what do I do with it, especially if it comes back as an intermediate metabolizer, which is maybe up to 15% of patients. It logically makes sense that if they come back a poor metabolizer, that I should use something else. Interestingly, and I didn't realize this, especially in the premenopausal women, I've struggled with, do I want to know this? Do I know that if I have to go to ovarian suppression and an AI, for example, that that's really the right thing and better? But apparently, teremaphin, which we don't use much in this country, but another CIRM, is not metabolized by the CYP2D6 pathway. It's a CYP3A4. And so some very respected colleagues of mine have recently pointed out to me that that could be another option in a premenopausal woman if you were using using the CYP2D6 assay and had a poor metabolizer. I think we need trials to tell us what to do with the intermediate. And given that about 80% are normal metabolizers, the wild type, wild type, 
that's a group where actually I think if we could analyze the big trials like the ATAC or the big 198, looking at the way the differences are falling, it could be that those 80% might even do a little better with tamoxifen, but it's the other, you know, the intermediate and the poor metabolizers that do so much worse that that's accounting for a big part of the difference. We need a lot more data here. I'm getting close to ordering it, <laughs> but I just need to know what I'm going to do based on the results. And, you know, the way that I think about the results are they're either Wild type, wild type there, the intermediate, which is like a star four. And star four is the one we know most about in terms of variant and all. Or they're a poor metabolizer. And I just try to classify that into those three areas and think about it that way. It's kind of like the Oncotype DX when you're in the middle. Right, yeah. I think, you know, at least the GET study, the intermediate metabolizers were more like the wild type. Tom, another issue I think that maybe is going to come up in premenopausal patients where you do see, you know, that's where people are getting tamoxifen, even in postmenopausal patients that get tamoxifen, I think if they get to five years, they're going to get switched. But is now maybe the question of should we begin to start to think about continuing tamoxifen beyond five years? And could you talk a little bit about what happened in San Antonio in terms of the ATLAS study that was presented by Richard Peter? Well, <laughs> um, the ATLAS trial was presented. It was, and there wasn't actually very much data. There was a lot of kind of preparatory discussion of what we might be seeing based on the fact that not all the patients were known to be ER positive. You know, we lost some follow-up on patients. Some of the patients were non-adherent to the regimen and so on. So there was a relatively modest benefit to continuing tamoxifen beyond five years, but there was a benefit. I mean, I mean quantitatively, the number so like he gave seven, out was 15%. Yeah, so like a 15% reduction. So that, to my mind, for a patient taking five years of tamoxifen, I'll generally switch them to an aromatase inhibitor. So it's a really a pretty small group of patients to whom it would apply to be patients who remain premenopausal after five years of tamoxifen. So that'd be the population where this information would be relevant. I guess that's and not... I'm not convinced. I think if you look at the previous trials, there were a lot of no negative patients, so that a number of the events after five years were contralateral breast cancer. So if you look at, in the attack trial, higher risk patients, maybe continuing tamoxifen is a benefit, but I still remain kind of unconvinced. Alan? Obviously, this woman is 80, but if you take a younger woman, let's say she's 48, and maybe not 13 positive nodes, maybe two positive nodes, maybe a two centimeter tumor, and she has an ERPR negative HER2 positive tumor. The question of TCH versus ACTH came up this morning. Julie? You know, I have to say that my bias is to include the anthracycline unless I'm really worried about the cardiac toxicity. Some of this is built on, you know, from, you know, my fellowship and beyond being convinced that anthracyclines are really important in HER2-positive patients. And I'm trying to make sure that I'm not just being stubborn about a switch to the TCH regimen and all, but, you know, I think that there may very well be a population of patients who really do strongly benefit from that anthracycline. And I haven't figured out who that is yet, so I'm not quite sure I'm comfortable saying that for everybody that we should be giving TCH. So I think if I'm worried about... So first of all, TCH is not better. 
I mean, it was hypothesized to be better based on in vitro data, you know, but it's not better. Nobody's arguing that in terms of efficacy and reducing recurrences and deaths, it's better. Where it has some advantages on the order of a two-ish to three percent reduction in the CHF. And if you can pick out a population who is at lower and normal risk for the CHF and pull out the ones that are at high risk, then that almost goes away too. So basically, I would give a young, healthy woman who has a good EF and isn't on hypertensive medications and is young, I would still favor anthracycline taxane with the trastuzumab. Tom? Yeah, I pretty much feel the same way. I, In someone who's not hypertensive, under age 50, for sure, I would tend to use ACTH, and I usually give it the intergroup way with AC followed by weekly paclitaxel with trastuzumab. But in someone in whom I'm worried about, who has those risk factors, I will use TCH. So I use both regimens. Can we just get the speakers to comment on the leukemia risk with ACTH? Because that was brought up this morning. Yeah, so various anthracycline regimens that we've looked at across the board have different rates of leukemia and myelodysplasia. I think for this, you need some long-term follow-up to really see what the rates will be. We've got a head-on comparison trial where we can follow this out in BCRG006. It is not an issue to this point in that trial that there is any major difference. But if you give CEF with 120 per meter squared of epi in the Canadian way, you get up to a 2% increase risk. But that's not what we're giving here. You know, I do think it's important. I would hate to cure breast cancer only to get a leukemia. But I do think that having not had a single case of anthracycline-induced leukemia or myelodysplasia to date in my practice, you know, 15 years later, I think it's something to think about, but it wouldn't influence me in this decision. And where we're really going to get the solid comparison data is through BCRG06, which to date has no hint of problems. Scott? What type of trial would it take for you to abandon doxorubicin in the adjuvant setting for HER2-positive disease? Would it have to be a trial that indicated superiority of effectiveness? Well, I think if we have longer follow-up that indicates that they're equivalent, I would accept that. But it would have to be powered to show equivalence. So I'm not close-minded on the situation at all, but it's just that we have all the historical data saying anthracyclines are at least better than CMF. You know, the N9831 used an anthracycline-based regimen, so I'm not close to the idea that TCH or a non-anthracycline regimen is useful. But I just want to see sort of a consistent story and follow-up. And so we'll see what the data show as they mature. Clearly, if there was a superior regimen, I would give it up. But that's not the case here. You know, the BCRG06 was designed with the thought that TCH would be superior in terms of reducing recurrences and deaths. And that's just not been seen. I have no issue with people using TCH predominantly. I just haven't convinced myself that I'm ready to go there at this point. So I wouldn't fault anybody for saying that TCH in this study looks as good as the anthracycline regimen. I guess I'm just saying that I'm weighing the side effects a little differently, and I do think I can pick out people who are at highest risk for the one distinguishing feature, which is the difference in the cardiac events. And, you know, we always are balancing efficacy with toxicity. And, you know, this is part of why being an oncologist is much more of an art than a science in a lot of ways, because we don't have every trial that we would like to tell us what to do. 